Let's open in prayer. Father God, you call us again to continue to study our question of can we coexist? Can we accept those around us who may not think like us or worship like us? You call us to be in this world and yet to separate ourselves to not be from this world. On this Pentecost Sunday, Father, we realize the mercy and the gift of your Holy Spirit. We would ask it to be with us today as we continue this journey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, then. Good morning. Come on in. No, you're not late. Everything's cool. You can come sit here right in front of me if you want. You'll do it? <laughs> no one ever does it. <laughs> I'm really, I'm probably one of the nicest persons you'll ever meet, so I, it'll be cool. I will not embarrass you or do it. Come on in, it's all fine. Don't hesitate. <clears throat> okay, good morning. Here is our a topic for this morning. Uh, three positions staked out, representative of Christians down through the ages. Uh, and we will get into each one of these positions. And of course, you see the, the principles, the people that I've chosen out of church history to represent these positions. We'll get into all those people uh, in just a minute, and I think you'll find it very interesting. Um, I want to make a couple comments about last week. How many were here last week? Okay, how many had questions when you walked out the door? All right, well, um, I, I know some of you did, and, I, and, and one person here uh, said, you know, that was really cool, I liked it, but I had a tug in my heart when I was listening to it because there are texts that in, indicate that there will only be a few people to be saved. Is this what some of you were thinking about when I was talking about this? At least one of you were. Anyways, I brought this book in case any of you are concerned with that. There are texts that if you uh, are not careful and you take them out of their context, it appears to be that the Bible is saying that most people will be lost. Okay? And of course, if that is your predisposition, if that is your inclination in the first place, theologically, then you will surmount those texts and power them out and make the case. And in point of fact, I didn't think that's even what's happened theologically in America. Those texts have predominated over the other texts that could have helped put them in a context. But I don't want to solve the problem for you because it is a problem. Yes, sir? Where would you have learned that? Where would you have learned what? That the, those texts have taken over the... Where would I have learned it? Where would you have learned it? You would have to have studied the entire New Testament corpus, the body of literature, and understand what the New Testament says holistically about salvation and about all people, and then use that holistic understanding of salvation to then go to those texts and see if those are what the interpreters, the old school people called the crux interpretum, right? The central text that interprets the other texts. Right, because you can always find text and pit them against each other. 
But what you need to do is get the spirit of the holistic, all of the text, and find the ones that they say, this is God's heart, and that text explains these little glitchy ones over here that sound kind of odd. Yes? Well, there was a whole spate of movies. There were a whole spate of movies in the early 70s. The Left Behind series also came up here in the late 1990s and 2000s. And uh, yes, that, that point of view is what I'm talking about, the predominant viewpoint that basically um, only, the, only a small group of Christians will be saw, saved. And well, I, I don't want to say it's not true. I don't want to say it's true. What I, last, you, you were here last week. You heard what I was teaching, that I think God's widen, the wideness of God's agape love is a lot bigger than a few texts that we can wrench out of context. However, I don't want to... I'm not the Pope, and I don't want to come in here and say, this is the way it is. I gave my presentation. You need to think about it, but I want to point out to you. Shocking. I have a book here. I mean, this is rare stuff, man. This is published by the Presbyterian and Reformed Publishing Company. Uh, I bought this book 40 years ago. There's my man, B.B. Warfield. Does anybody know who that is? Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, professor of polemic theology at Princeton University from 1886 to 1920 when PhD meant, well, it meant a lot, not piled higher and deeper like it does now. <laughs> I know, I'm too. Stone Cold Scholar. Princeton at that time was considered to be the bastion of Protestant Christian orthodoxy. And Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield was the leader of it. He's got a chapter here, Are There Few That Be Saved? He's a stone cold Calvinist, a stone cold Reformed theologian. He goes through all of the texts, the problem texts, the texts that seem to be that no, 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 not only, only a few will be saved. And he comes out to a conclusion that is just stunning published in 1915, in which he agrees with me. <laughs> Anyways, I'm just messing around, but, but I just want to caution in this day and age that we live, don't use texts to, to terrorize people, and don't, don't let texts terrorize you. Today you're going to meet some people that were able to read the Bible and move beyond the letter of the text, in many cases, into the spirit of Jesus and of the Bible. And that's what I would like you to do. So I'm giving this to Dan. He's going to copy the chapter, because I don't know if you could even buy that book now. And uh, when he gets a few copies, if any of you have that question, I think you'll find it very interesting to read it. Now, uh, in January of 2017, I had an interesting experience. My former history professor invited me over to his house for breakfast with his wife. So when I went over there, I'm sitting there, and it suddenly dawned on me that I had been in his uh, Western Civ class in 1977. That was 40 years ago. So I said to him, now, there's no way you would know this or could remember it. 
But do you realize that 40 years ago I was sitting in your class while you were waxing on about Western Civ? And, uh, you know, we had a laugh about it. But that's pretty amazing, right, to know somebody for 40 years. And uh, so I've been having a 40-year conversation with this guy. When I first met him, I was a hotshot who had my own theories about history, and I would go up to his office and lecture him on why he was... (laughs) uh, He was being too academic, is what I told him. You're not incorporating the biblical corpus. You're not actually showing how the Christian worldview impacts history, and blah, blah, blah. So that started our 40-year conversation. In 2009, we went to Toronto together to speak at a conference. So you know how old guys get up in the night all the time? (laughs) So I'm laying in bed, you know, in this cottage or whatever next to him. He gets up a couple times. I got up once. So he gets up one time. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. He says something to me of a worldview nature. I responded to him. And the next time I actually became aware of what was going on, the sun was coming up. And I thought, this is ridiculous. We've been having this conversation for over 30 years now. We're like two college sophomores staying up all night chatting about, you know, these big things. Does anybody know who I'm talking about? John Oliver, who passed away in March. So, anyways, I wanted to start today by telling you the one central thing that he taught me and then a couple of corollaries that I feel the Lord has shown me on the notion of reading history. Now, you have all heard this quote, I'm sure, right? It's famous or infamous, Lord Acton. And of course, when John studied history, when he taught history, he liked to teach it, as he called it, from the underside. Instead of only looking at the great uh, movements of human history and the great figures, give me one, Judge, great historical figures, give me one, Phyllis. (laughs) Yeah, any great historical figure. Anybody, give me one. Napoleon. Napoleon. Alexander. Ben Franklin. Okay, in what you study the flow of history, you're almost always studying what? The, well. <laughs> and John would absolutely have applauded that statement. Absolutely, there's... Um, you know, Zev has told you about the term white privilege. There's white patriarchal privilege that has invaded the academy. Surprise, surprise. And so, uh, yeah, right. There's all kinds of biases. So, you know, the world is changing and we're all struggling with this, but now we come to this issue. And this is his surmising or his conclusion from human history that the more power you have, the more it tends to go bad for you and for those that you lead, okay? So I, I, that really impacted me and helped me to think about history from the underside. Like what was God doing with the millions and millions of people, the little people, down through the flow of human history, not just these big people. Okay, so here's what I personally have come to in reading church history. Uh, if you read a lot of church history, uh, you have to be careful because, uh, let me ask you a question. How many of you would like to have somebody do a biography on your life and lay it out for the world to read? (laughs) Come on. You would like it? What? 
You're fine with it. Oh, God bless you. I'd be horrified. Not that I'm living in secrecy. It's just, I, don't, I wouldn't want, you know, when you read church history, they get down into every one of your little uh, peccadillos and your major sins and lay them all out there. Okay, so. Pardon me? That's correct, but the question always comes up when you're reading church history and you find a great Christian who does something like, how could you, even the question, how, how could you do that? How can you be a Christian and do Yeah, it never happens to you. Okay. All right. Well, I, I'm sorry, but I mean, this is one of my ones that's wounded me in the core of my heart. The first book that in, I, I became a Christian out of the counterculture movie, movement, I was a stone-cold hippie. The first book that anybody ever gave me to read on the Christian faith was Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians. It's that thick. It's a detailed 1,500 crushing text blowing. I mean, it was like I couldn't believe that that kind of literature existed. Plus, he was a real character, and I liked him. So I went to a Lutheran church for a while, and I used to call Martin Uncle Marty because he was like my... My, little, my, my first little Christian teacher. I love him. I still love him. But at the end of his life, 1536, I got to say the guy must have went crazy because he issued a sermon that called on, uh, was titled On the Jews and Their Lies. <coughs> Marky. And he goes through and he go, and, and re, Martin Niemuller, the great Lutheran theologian said, if you read that sermon, take it to the 20th century, white out the Christianese and put in Nazi language, you have the Nazi program. Because what Luther said in 1536 was, kill them all, drive them out, burn their houses, drive them out of Germany. Uncle Marty! Nine! So what I'm saying to you, and I'm, I'm not trying to dispute your experience. I'm a human being. I read this stuff, and I'm like, yeah, the blood of Jesus covers them, but we got to be careful. So here's what I do when I read history. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who does that apply to first and foremost? Me. <laughs> so I never forget this. I read the stuff that people do, and I say, yeah, I could have done that. Yeah, I did that. No, I, I, if I would have had the right opportunity, I probably would have done that. Instead of reading it now from a superior 21st century position, how could you have done that? I read it out of the context of the wickedness of my own heart. Yeah, I could have done that stuff. I don't know what I could have done or wouldn't have done or would have done given if I'd have been put in a situation some of these people were in. And then I, I say, heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, I shall be saved. So when I see the wickedness of my own heart and when I encounter the wickedness of my fellow Christians as I read church history, I have to say, God, save us, save us, save us, save us from ourselves. Okay, so number two, I read church history. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Who do you think that was? Now get this. Now, I want to do something. Here, put your leg down, please. Now, you've got to imagine this. We're at the Last Supper. They're inclining. You're not going to sit on your lap. I'm not going to sit on your lap. You've got to envision John 
He's so comfortable with Jesus, he's eating the Last Supper like this. That's the way my gravy gets in his ear. (laughs) Now, that's intimacy. That would freak out a 21st century person. If you walked in and saw your pastor with a group of male disciples sitting around him and one of them was laying up on his chest, you'd be like, okay, now, what does that tell us about John? He says, he, he says, the one that Jesus loved. Is he suggesting that Jesus loved him more than other people? Is that what he's saying? Hey, I was Jesus' pet. Man, I was right up in his heart. I was in his grill, as they would say today. I knew everything about him. He loved me more than anybody. Is that what he's saying? That would completely destroy everything we know about God and God's love. What did we learn from Peter? God shows no favoritism. So John's not saying Jesus loved me more than other people. He's saying, this has so thunderstruck me that Jesus loves me that that's how I now view myself as one who Jesus loves. Wouldn't that be cool if that's how you really saw yourself? So now you've got to be a, kind of a spiritual schizophrenic because Jeremiah tells you what? Dude and dudettes, <laughs> you are wicked to the core of your being. Beyond your imagination, you are wicked and I am wicked. And at the same time, we are the objects of Jesus' love. And you got to keep both of them in your head at the same time or you will you'll go bananas. You will. Okay. So here we are today. We're going to look at three great saints. Bono of Dublin. (laughs) Bernard of Clairvaux and Francis of Assisi. And they had three strategies that they employed in time-space history. We're going to look at them. And I'm doing this today primarily descriptively, not prescriptively. I want to show you what the strategies and the approaches have been. I'm not telling you which one is right. You will read, study, and look at it and come to a conclusion of what you think may be the one for us today. So let's start with the coexist movement. Let's start in modern times and go backwards. Okay, <clears throat> have you seen this sign? It made its way into this church, right, on the posters? Okay, so this is where it came from. Uh, Piotr Molosidesenek is the one who created that original image uh, in Jerusalem for an art contest. Now, do you see the uh, interesting thing about the, the image? What's interesting about it? He's used the three symbols of the three major faiths, 1.2 billion Muslims, 1.56. If you say Christians, Muslims, 3 billion, Jews, only 18 million. I don't mean that deprecatory, but you, you, wow, only 18. You're talking about 18 million to 1.5 billion, but yes, it's still a major religion in the world. So he's using all three to put a message out, and that is coexist. It could be taken as an imperative, coexist. I'm telling you that. It could be taken as uh, an exor- exhortational uh, uh, kind of language, coexist. We don't know how he actually meant it, but it's out there. And then what happened was 
uh, actually a coexist foundation got started. Started by uh, an Islamic uh, PhD from Princeton. And uh, what he's done here is you can see uh, the stated mission in the middle paragraph, promote, encourage, and support engagement between Jews, Christians, and Muslims individually and through their respective communities through dialogue, education, and research. Anything wrong with that? There's nothing inside the movement, and a lot of people are freaked out about it. And we'll see in a minute Bono, particularly when he got involved in it. But a lot of people think that they're saying, look, it doesn't matter what you believe. That's not what this movement is saying. They're saying, we know you believe this and this and this. For the last one fifteen hundred years, we, or 2,000 years, we have seen that conversation in world history. We're simply saying what? Don't kill each other. Well, yes, sir. Wouldn't it be interesting if the word collectively was inserted ahead of individually? Collectively and individually. I, judge, you should write to them and tell them that. Because seriously, I mean, these people are serious. They really want to well, get into this. Yes, collectively. So that would mean what? Then that, well, that, I think it changes the dimension of the then the leaders of those communities would then have to what, do more to collectively get the communities involved, sure. right? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think we need to do everything we can to, to do that. So anyways, notice at the bottom, one of the current projects is Understanding Islam, and they're publishing, you know, trying to publish out really good world-class literature, not polemics, not propaganda. Put it out there so Christians, Jews, and Islamic people can come understand each other. Okay, so I'm not affirming it, I'm not denying it, I'm just saying this is what these people are doing, they're serious. But it really c took off, it really exploded when Bono, from the lead singer of U2, put, uh, and I'm sorry about the picture, but can you see his uh, headband? His headband is the coexist thing. And it was during the Vertigo tour of 2005 and six. you all remember that? That's <laughs> what I thought. Um, and if you, I, look, I'm not trying to be superior here. Do, do you guys know who U2 is? Do you, yes. you do? Okay. Um, I mean, just to put it in a context without bias, the biggest rock band, the absolute biggest rock band of the 80s, the 90s, and even into the 2000s. I mean, these guys fill stadiums. If you ever want to see something cool, do the, do the concert they did at Shane Castle in Ireland. My word, because they're from Dublin. These people are Irish. And I mean, when you see those Irish people waving the flags and they're all into that music, it's very touching, very beautiful. By the way, Bono is a self-professed Christian as the rest of the people are in the group. Some people say, he can't be a Christian, he's a rock star. Okay, whatever. <laughs> um, he claims to be one. Now, at this concert, he said, coexist, Jesus, Jew, Muhammad, it's true. Jesus, Jew, Muhammad, it's true. All sons of Abraham, Father Abraham, Father Abraham, where are you now, Father Abraham? Look what you've done. You've pitted your son against your son. Father, Father Abraham, no more, no more, no more, no more, no more. What's he saying? All religions are the same? I mean, he's, he's directing the world's attention to, isn't it odd? We all descend, either spiritually or biologically, Christian, Jew, and Muslim, from Abraham and he's saying, 
how can this be? How can we start out with Abraham knowing God and come down to the world today of us slaughtering one another when in reality we all trace our lineage back up to this one person? He's asking us to think about that. He's not saying it doesn't matter what you believe, which was wrongly interpreted by guess who when he said it? Guess who he got the most heat from? Conservative Christians ripped him to pieces. He's an antichrist. He's saying it doesn't matter what you believe. That's not what he said. And he doesn't say it to this day. And by the way, if you say Bono, who cares about Bono? Rock star. Yeah? Well, he's been knighted by the Queen of England. And the rest of his commendations and honors are listed there for you. And I just listed the iceberg. It is estimated that Bono has raised over $1 billion and plus much more to deliver aid to Africa. He is universally regarded as a very sincere philanthropist and social activist. And leaders around the world are blown away when they meet this guy. Because have you ever seen him? Have you ever seen him? I mean, he most always wears black and leather. Usually has bizarro sunglasses. He looks like a rock star. He shows up dressed like that to, to meet the Queen of England and all these other leaders of the world. He is known by the leaders of the world. They like him. Why? Because he's trying to get the, the countries of the world to pay attention to some of the big, big social justice issues that exist in our world. And he's done a lot to promote it. Read about him. So anyways, here's the question. Coexist, is it possible? What does the coexist movement say? Let's try. Let's just, let's try. Let me get to know you. Let me become friends with you. Let's see if we can get along. Let's try this. And uh, then on June 25th, you won't want to miss this, Zev is going to end this whole class with a lecture. You want to talk about it just briefly? Yeah, I'm wearing the logo, too. Um, I'm not going to uh, telegraph what I'm going to say on the 25th, but what I really want to do right now is just give you two examples of where Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and even more people came together and changed the world by their coexistence. The one I'm going to talk about on June 25th is what happened in Spain in what has come to be known as the Convivencia. The Convivencia. And as part of that, and I hope to put together a PowerPoint presentation for this, as part of this, you will see a picture of the tomb of... Uh, of somebody the third, I can't remember, is the son of Alfonso the Wise. But his tomb in Toledo has inscriptions not just in Latin, but in Hebrew and Arabic. You mean Toledo, Spain. Toledo, Spain. <laughs> not Toledo, Ohio. Okay. Um, so I'm going to be talking about 
But the convivencia itself had roots that go back much further. Uh, have any of you heard of the tales of the Arabian Nights? Okay, one of the major figures that comes in many tales there is the great Islamic caliph, Abbasid caliph of Baghdad, Harun al-Rashid. Even before Harun al-Rashid, one of the most important institutions of learning was established in Baghdad, the capital, the newly created capital of the Abbasid uh, Caliphate in the 8th century of the Common Era, which is the forerunner of the modern university. It was called the House of Wisdom. And at the House of Wisdom, the best scholars in the entire Islamic empire, Jews, Christians, Muslims, even Hindus, came together and first of all, recognized, saved, and translated all the wisdom of ancient Greek. Virtually everything we know about Greek philosophy, science, is what was rescued by the House of Wisdom in Baghdad. They went on from there to create, and I know this is not exactly going to endear high school students to them, algebra, trigonometry, modern optics. It was an Arab scholar of the House of Wisdom who first accurately describes how the eye sees and basically laid the foundation in optics for the modern camera. At a time as um, uh, the film, another section of the film we saw, Islam, Empire of Faith, in the second part of that, which I heartily recommend, at a time when Christians were invoking the relics of their ancestors for healing, they were removing cataracts in Baghdad with a hollow needle. They invented, they also invented the modern hospital with the idea of isolating patients in terms of their disease. They even had a concept of germ theory in the 8th century. And the important point was they knew that all of the knowledge and wisdom and scientific expertise that they could get their hands on was important to humanity, regardless of the people who had. One thing also, I've, I've sort of done this something a little bit sneaky, in that I started filling out, you know, when I go to First Lutheran Church and turn in my offering, I write on the envelope in Arabic numerals. I mean in, in, I mean in Roman numerals. Because I said, if we're gonna ban Muslims from this country, we better stop using Arabic numerals, hadn't we? Those were invented, including the concept of zero by the Hindus, and it was the scholars of the House of Wisdom and turned that into modern arithmetic. We count, I mean, how would you like to do your taxes with Roman numerals? You can thank coexistence for you or your accountant being able to do your taxes. Okay. So that's a taste of what will happen on June 25th. Make sure you please come.
Okay, so now we will shift gears and go back uh, approximately a thousand years. How many of you have heard of Bernard of Clairvaux? It's okay, uh, um, but you'll see why you perhaps want to know about him. <clears throat> Look at the years he lived, 1090. So he's a thousand years past Jesus, roughly, past the apostles, and a thousand years before us, roughly. Right in the middle. Priest, greatest reformer of the late 1100s. Uh, this man was virtually universally respected throughout the medieval church. You, you, you couldn't get much higher in people's estimation. Uh, look at, he founded all these monasteries. He was called the doc, he was a doctor of the church. He was a scholar. And the title that I like the most, and the one that I want for myself, is Dr. Mellifilus. <laughs> Does anybody know what that means? Dr. Mellifilus? <laughs> it's a Latin phrase. It means a sweet-sounding tone or sound or attitude. A sweet speaker, Dr. Mellifilus. He was a fantastic preacher, scholar, organizer, statesperson, well, almost a genius, I would think. He was called a saint in 1174 by the Pope. If, I mean, you know, that's not easy, even if you disagree with it. You know? That's like making the Navy SEALs. Okay. Was he a spiritual person? How many of you used this technique here at um, this church? Lectio Divina. Yeah, yeah, Pam! Yes. Well, that's, this, this was Bernard's thing. He thought that's the way you should study the Bible. Don't be a prig and a, a scholarly prig and, and write all these learned treatises and stack everything up with footnotes and use the Bible to get into disputations. No, it's, a, it's, it's God's love letter to you. And so, you know, look at what he says. You know, you read it, you meditate, you pray, you contemplate. It's a devotional approach. A devotional approach. Not, not scholarly, because he was a scholar. But when he had his scholarship over here, when he wanted to have God speak to his heart, this is what he recommended. And he said, this is what makes the church come alive when it feasts on these words like that and it takes you up into Jesus. So a very spiritual person. Uh, how many of you have ever read the, or heard the hymn, Jesus, the very thought of thee? I, I love, is anybody, is, are there any singers here? Any, does anybody, could anybody sing this song? Just the first stanza. I knew it! But, but what Well, <laughs> that's what I'm counting on you to know. Oh, oh. Who knows the tune? It's, I don't know the tune, I'm sorry. You know the tune. Yes. You want to hum along. <laughs> now we're just, go here, and you're just, Give her a little background hum, because okay. we don't want to hear okay, you. Okay, here we go. Jesus, the very thought of thee, with sweetness fills the breast, but sweeter far thy face to see, and in thy silence rest. For presence rest. For presence rest. <laughs> You see better than I do. 
Thanks. <coughs> no, thank you. It's a beautiful hymn. I mean, you can't write stuff like that. You don't, you don't write stuff like that unless you're in love with Jesus. I'm sorry. Uh, oh, hope of every contrite heart, oh, joy of all the meek. To those who fall, how kind thou art, how good to those who seek. But ah, what to those who find, ah, this no tongue nor pen can show. The love of Jesus, what it is, none but his loved ones know. Billy Graham couldn't write something that good. <laughs> this is evangelical, stone-cold gospel piety from a, a thousand years ago. By the way, that picture, that painting, uh, painted by a great uh, Italian master, it, it symbolizes Bernard coming into the arms of Jesus. He, he loves Jesus. Now, how many of you have seen the movie Kingdom of Heaven? If you go see it, or get it, watch the director's cut, because that's the one that Ridley Scott wanted out and the one that's what represents what he really wanted to say. What is it? It's a movie set in the 1170s in the aftermath of the Second Crusade. The aftermath of the Second Crusade that Bernard of Clairvaux was the preacher for. He called for it. Dr. Malephilus. And so literary and historical license is taken, but the film by most scholars has said, yeah, you watch that, you kind of get the feeling of what the, the crusade era was like. All of the various viewpoints are represented. The saints and the sinners. Fine, so now we put it in a context. Watch the movie, Kingdom of Heaven. It'll help you a lot understand why we have problems in the world today between Christians and Islam. The great Saladin is featured in the movie. I had an unusual childhood, I guess, because I grew up with an aunt who was a genius when she went to work for the government in Washington after she graduated. Arabic studies were exploding because that's where the world was going, so she learned Arabic. Have you ever seen Arabic? So I grew up with an, with an aunt who told me all the time how great Saladin was. The great Saladin. Does anybody have heard of Saladin? The Christian authors of his day, he was the Islamic leader that led in the Second and Third Crusade. They said, we can't believe that such horrible theology could produce such a noble human being that's even better than the Christians. He's one of the great people of all time in terms of ethics and honor. And don't mess with him either stone-cold warrior, but merciful and generous. Watch the movie, you'll see. Now, here's Bernard in 1146. This is the actual text of the sermon. If you want to read it and check up on me, go home today, Bernard of Clairvaux, the Second Crusade sermon, and you'll see it. I highlighted only, I didn't want to rip it out of context, I wanted you to see, but I only highlighted the big ones. So look down at the first line. Hasten then to exp the big letters. Hasten then to expiate your sins by victories over the infidels and let the deliverance of holy places be the reward of your repentance. This is a sermon. What did he just say? What? Read it slower, please. Read it slower. 
Hasten then to expiate or deal with or cleanse or atone for your sins by victories over the infidels and let the deliverance of holy places be the reward of your repentance. What's the holy places? Jerusalem, the infidels, Islam. He's preaching to French Christians. What is he telling them to do? Go there and kill the followers of Islam that will deal with your sins and at the same time you will get a cool reward when Jerusalem becomes yours. Number two, top of the page. Fly then to arms, let a holy rage animate you in the fight and let the Christian world resound with the words of the prophet. Cursed be he who does not stain his sword with blood. That you know he's quoting the Bible? Cursed be, you don't remember that one? It's in there. Wrenched horribly out of context, but who am I to say to Dr. Malephilus? He snatched it out of context and basically said, what? You're cursed if you don't do what? Take up that sword and kill him. If you don't, you're cursed. Oh, that can't be right. What do we know from Galatians 3? What did the master, what did Paul tell us? Jesus Christ became a curse for us when he died on the cross. There's no more curse. God's not going to put a curse on anybody. He already put it on Christ. So he's wrong, but keep going. (laughs) Christian warriors, he who gave his life for you today demands yours in return. What's he tell? That's that's better than the Marine Corps. You can't get a better motivation than that. Be all you can be. What's he doing here? He's saying, look, Jesus died for you. Now you need to do what? Pay him back. And So what if you die? Go over there and kill all these people. Yes, sir. Sounds a lot like ISIS today. Let's get illuminated. The ISIS people did not invent this language. This has been around for a long time. Final quote. The Christian glories in the death of a pagan because thereby Christ himself is glorified. What? (laughs) Now, I want to tell you. you. We sit here and read this and we say... That can't be right. That's right. This is the majority Christian position down through the ages. Whether you want to admit it or not, this is the majority Christian position. It may not be as blatant. They may not say, well, you can do, you're dealing with your sins. But Christians down through the ages have held this position that when we need to, we're going to use force of arms to do what? Kill we'll kill you. And we'll do it in God's name. And we'll do it for justice. I'm not arguing against the position. I want you to feel it. This is the majority Christian position. Yes. This is the same guy that wrote that song? Yes! My brain. Jesus, the very thought of thee. He's down on his knees worshiping Jesus, and then he gets up and goes to France and says what? Cursed be the one who does not stain his sword of blood. Now, remember I told you at the beginning, I read this stuff, and what happens to me? I go, how could you believe that? How could you do that? And then I remember, what? My own wicked heart. 
push me up against a wall. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm Russian. <laughs> right, they're crazy, right? That's what we see here on news, right? Everybody in Russia is crazy. So I'm Russian, I'm crazy. I don't know what I'll do if you push me. I hope I would never do that. I hope I would never come to the place where I would think I was doing God's will by beheading a Muslim. I can't even, I mean, it's, this is the second crusade. The first crusade, 1095, I, I, I would horrify you if I read Pope Urban's sermon. It would horrify you, the language that they use. But I want to tell you, sir, that the language that Pope Urban used in 1095 to call for the first crusade is exactly the same as ISIS uses today. All they did was take it and flip it. And so, <clears throat> when they went to Jerusalem that first time, and they finally conquered the city, the crusaders, about 12,000 of them, slaughtered about 70,000 people in the city. They laid waste to everything. Everything. Raymond uh, uh, from France said, literally, we rode our horses up to the stirrups in blood as it ran through the streets. They went crazy. And not just against followers of Islam. Now, at the end of his life, Bernard got blamed because guess what happened during the Second Crusade? He preached it. They all went out. The pride and glory of Western Christendom and they got crushed. They got slaughtered. The Islamic uh, defenses were so good they just blew them away. So everybody then blamed who? Bernard, because you called for this. And it led to an attitude among the Western Christians of it really weakened the faith because they really believed this stuff. Have you, ever had, have you ever heard anybody say something like, my God is stronger than your God? Have you ever heard anybody say that? My God is stronger than your God? They believed that that was a test of whose, whose reality was true. If, our, if we win this war, that means what? My God is stronger than your God. If you win, that means what? So when the Western Christendom came back to Europe after getting crushed in the Second Crusade, the question everybody was asking was what? <laughs> Doesn't seem like God's on our side. Yes? What if you lose, it's your fault? Pardon? If you lose, it's your fault because you sinned. And <sighs> my God is better than your God mm -hmm. because you're a pagan and we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph. Right. That's, I mean, that's pretty much the and thank you for bringing that up because what did you just do for us that can help explain Bernard's <laughs> mindset? Where did you have to go? Uh, what part of the Bible? You had to go back 3,000 years to find an analog that, by the way, if I'm not misreading the Bible, that historical flow of the wars of Israel and all of that, that was blatantly ended in the Older Testament even when God said, don't do it anymore. And then by the time we get to who? Jesus. 
That's done. He never repeats that, never suggested, neither do the apostles. That's over with. That's a past thing. That's not how we look at things anymore. We don't have contest of faith with somebody dying to see whose God is stronger. And by the way, I got to tell you, now that you bring that up, it's very interesting. But do you see, when we get to Francis, I'll talk a bit more. Do you see here what he then does? He explains, look at the bold. He explains how the sins of the crusaders were the cause of the loss. Okay. So um, he doesn't, he's not repenting of calling for the war. He's not repenting of staining the sword with blood. What's he, what's he, what's he suggesting? Well, if you had been walking with the Lord, you would have won. You, you lost, ergo, algebra, you were walking with the Lord. Okay. Now, briefly, and I only say that not because I don't want to hear you talk, but because I want to uh, finish Francis. Tell us, in essence, what, as a corollary, going to fight Islam... What happened to the Jews over here? Years ago, uh, when I had just shortly converted to the Christian faith and had actually started, you know, studying in seminary, I got a phone call one afternoon from a rabbi I knew in Israel who was not just my rabbi, but what we call my Rebbe, the one who was like my chief teacher, my spiritual director, and he was on a fundraising trip for some of the schools he taught at in the United States when he heard that I had become a Christian. And he made one last attempt to try to win me back. And there are two events that he brought up as if to say, what about, have you totally forgotten about this? One was the Holocaust, of course and the other was the Crusades. When the first Crusade, especially, when the Crusaders who have been encouraged by Pope Urban to take up arms to deliver the Holy Land, they did not go alone. They were followed by mobs of people across France and Germany, especially in the Rhineland whose basic cry was, why wait to the Holy Land and kill Muslims? We have the enemies of Christ in our midst. Let's kill the Jews first. And there was violence, there was murder, there was pillaging, there was raping, there was every horror you can imagine. The track of the Crusaders through Europe was a track of Jewish suffering exceeded only by the Holocaust. And they didn't stop when they got to the Holy Land. Not only did the Crusaders massacre Muslims, they also massacred Jews, anyone they found who was Jewish, and it didn't stop there. When they got to the Church of the Sepulchre, there were Eastern Christians there. They massacred them, too. Every crusade since then 
every crusade after that, including the second crusade. And the third crusade was followed by paroxysm of violence against Jews in Europe. And some of the most moving hymns of lamentation in the Jewish liturgy were composed by people witnessing this. And lest you think that's just ancient history, I want to bring in a little personal note. My mother of blessed memory grew up on her father's farm in what is now Lakewood, Colorado. And in the 20s and 30s, there was an organization which dominated the politics of the state of Colorado and the city of Denver. That organization was the Ku Klux Klan. Her father's farm lay right beside the route that the Klan would take to go hold their cross burnings on Table Mountain west of Denver. And they knew my grandfather was Jewish. So as they marked past, they would try to shoot his guard dogs, fire his haystacks. That was my mother's first encounter with the symbol of the cross. You really expect you're going to win converts among the Jewish people for Christianity? Come on, get real. This unleashing of violence against the infidel just doesn't include Muslims. It includes everyone who doesn't belong to your particular brand of Christianity. Okay. More on that later. <clears throat> and let's now do Francis with the little time that we have. Francis of Assisi. You've heard of him. A lot more than Bernard of Clairvaux. Let me see your hands. Now, I mean, everybody's heard of Francis. Patron saint of hippies in San Francisco. Why? Well, Francis was a mystic. He loved everything. Uh, the birds, nature, life, people. And, uh, hey, by the way, do we got anybody that uh, speaks Italian in here? Oh, come on. <laughs> I want somebody to do uh, his name in Italian. No, no, right there. Giovanni de Bernardone. Bernardone. Is it Done or Don? Giovanni. See, that's why I didn't want to do it. And all you're sitting out here, you know Italian, now you're going to correct me. How do you say it? Giovanni di Bernardone. Do you say the Bernardone or do you Bernardone? Bernardone. Yeah, that's Francis of Assisi. If he lived today, we'd call him Frankie. Francis is his taken name. His Christian name. He gave up his name. He gave up his wealth. He gave up his father's business. He was a playboy. He was a nice guy, but he was, he was not living for the Lord. Now, did you see this movie, Brother, Son, Sister, Moon? Yes! 1972. You got to go. Get It's fun. It's his early life. Donovan, the rock, uh, folk rock uh, artist, does the music. It's kind of hippie and trippy. It's okay. 
you catch the spirit of Francis and what kind of a person he was. By the way, he spent a lot of time in war, was a prisoner of war in his youth, and this all shook him up. By the time he came back in his early 20s from all these wars and being imprisoned, he went underwent a striking conversion and became the father or the, order, or the creator of the order of the Franciscans. How do you know who a Franciscan is in the Catholic Church? They always wear brown robes. They've sworn to a vow of poverty. They live on the less, least amount of money possible and their mission in life uh, to, to, to fulfill kind of the spirit of Francis's, uh, preach the gospel at all times, use words when necessary. Did you hear that? That's the Franciscan model, and I'm going to tell you why now. In 1219, now this is what Francis did. He went uh, from Italy, and he went over to basically Egypt, and he met the Sultan of Egypt, who just happened to be the nephew of Saladin. Man, you are, you're, now you are up there right up at the top with the Islamic world. He went there, and why did he go there? He was going to convert the sultan. And also because the way that the middle-aged mind was wired, if I get blown away in the process, if I experience martyrdom, all the better because martyrdom is the completion of the Christian life. How many of you agree that to that? How many of you are hoping one day that the Lord lets you die for him? Those medievalists did. They were like, this would be the greatest thing. I'm going to Egypt. I'll either convert him or they'll kill me. Either way, I win. Okay, so when he gets now, I put all this up there. I'll just tell you what it says. By the way, you can get this whole presentation uh, from Rich on our website, right? Or on our site. You, You can get it on the podcast site. So he gets there. In the midst of the war, he's granted safe passage between followers of Islam and Christianity who are engaged in this brutal and futile war. He goes there, he meets the sultan, he speaks to him, he he shares the Christian faith with him. We don't have any really accurate reports about what was said or what wasn't said. There's a bunch of rumors about it. All I care about, it's like when I go to Israel, when you say, that's where the master put his foot. All I want to know is, hey, it's good enough for me to be in Bethlehem because I know he was in Bethlehem. And I don't know what Francis did when he went and talked to the sultan particularly, but I know why he went and why did he go? To share Jesus with him. To kill him? Ah, Francis would never even imagine that. And this is while the crusades are going on. No, we're not going to... I'll go and convert you. Okay. Now, no conversions happened, but here's what happened after Francis met Islam. Uh, look at the middle paragraph where it's dark. In his later writings, he says, those who wish to go as missionaries to the Muslims, that they should testify to their Christian faith by a simple, peaceable presence and a disposition of service. Did he give up conversion? No, because he says, you're still testifying to your Christian faith, right? So, he doesn't say give it up. What does he say the way to do it with Muslims is? Just be Jesus. Susan, how many times have you talked about being, being 
our being. It's, it, this is the heart and core of what God wants to do. God wants us to make us into some kind of a type of person, a, a being, not just somebody that says stuff, a type of person. Francis is saying, look, you want to go witness to Muslims? Then go there and walk out the Jesus path. Serve them, love them, care for them, learn from them. And if God wants, or to quote Islam, if God wills, yeah. inshallah. inshallah, then someone will become Christians. But we know that they're not going to be Christians. How? Not by the sword. In fact, I would say that they kind of showed the West a few things about fighting when you get down to it. Now, can you note the time? You have a couple minutes, and it's, a, it's an insult. It's an in, oh, you have five minutes then. It's an insult to you to do this in five minutes, but do your best. To Christians... Francis's approach seems very benign, extremely benign, but you also have to set it in a context of what had been going on in Europe, in Christendom, both before and after Francis, um, which was the systematic effort to persuade those who were not Christians in their midst to become Christian, and that was, of course, the Jews. And there were a number of things that were done both before and after to try to do this. One thing is that Jews were forced by the governments to come to churches and listen to, to preachers who told them that because they did not accept Christ, they were sinners and were going to hell. Not very effective, by the way. Number two, Jewish scholars were summoned to public disputations with Christian scholars. And some of the worst <coughs> opponents of the Jewish speakers, one in particular, was actually a convert from Judaism who persuaded the Pope to ban the Talmud and so any copy of the Talmud that they could get their hands on was publicly burned. The Nazis did not invent book burning. And the third way to try to pressure Jews into converting was to impose disabilities upon them, such as having to wear peculiar clothing, having to wear a yellow badge, being denied the opportunity to carry out professional, you know, to be professionals, except maybe in their own community. And when you add all these things together, if you really want to get a chilling understanding of how that works, Get a hold of Raoul Hilberg's The Destruction of the European Jews. The Destruction of the European Jews. His first two chapters alone are worth reading. They're called Antecedents and Precedents. And what he details 
is how there was an almost logical development from the Middle Ages to the Spanish Reconquista and to the Nazi world from you have no right to live among us as Jews. So if you persist in doing so, we will make life very hard on you. Then that progressed from you have no right to live among us. And so you get the expulsions from Spain and, and there were earlier expulsions than Spain and Portugal. And it's a very short step from there to you have no right to live. Which is what the Nazis said. Conversionism is not necessarily benign. Conversionism is not necessarily benign. I remember I was having a conversation with a Jewish friend of mine in folk dancing shortly after I converted to Christianity. And she had spent about three, I think six months on a kibbutz in Israel. And she said, well, how long were you in Israel? And I said, five years. She says, my God, no wonder you became an Episcopalian. <laughs> and then she said, well, as long as you don't become an anti-Semite. Because a lot of conversionism, especially when directed at Jews, is grounded in the theological anti-Judaism, which is one of the components of anti-Semitism that I talked about a few weeks ago. And now we're doing the same thing with Muslims. We are dispatching missionaries with Arabic translations of the New Testament and told, go and tell them that they have to accept Jesus or they're going to hell. Dr. Smith has a question. Well, how does the gospel work? What is the first thing you've got to do before you can even be open to accept the gospel? The way John started this whole process today. You've got to know you're a sinner. You've got to get the bad news before you can get the good news. Okay. Have you been convinced of that, Dr. Smith? What? You got that in spades. Um, let me uh, go to this last slide, and then Zev, if you want to make a couple more comments, then you can do that. So here we got three answers, three questions, or th one question, three answers. Coexist, crusade, con uh, conversion, and I'm asking myself and you, what will be our answer in this time and place? Now, Dr. Smith left, so he must have hated the answer. <laughs> no. I know he had to go. But here's my answer to that question. You can tell him later. Zev's right. You must, we must all come to terms with our sinfulness. Uh, and to the degree that we don't do that almost always, uh, non-godly, non-Jesus, non-helpful things spurt out of us that cause this whole process of being a Christian in the world to come to successful uh, reality. Um,
When I say something like, when the son, and I, I say this with tears in my eyes, when the son of the greatest evangelist of the 20th century uses the platform that he got given to call Islam, what did he call it? A dirty religion. See, you have to look at it from the Islamic point of view. It's like when we read the newspapers and we see some imam up there in Iran going off, what do we think? I don't want to have anything to do with that guy. That freaks me out. Their TV, Al Jazeera, shows Franklin Graham up there saying, Islam is a dirty religion. So we still haven't learned. I'm sorry for Dr. Smith being disappointed that it's bad news. But after I got done with this whole thing, and that's why I told you about you got to keep the other side of the story too, leaning on Jesus' chest. You got to lean on Jesus' breast when you read church history. You have to say, Jesus, where's your heart? Give me your heart. And, and go ahead. We don't know. Or the Muslims who are doing evil, let us have some understanding of them too. I mean, those back then the Vatican was corrupt. There was all kinds of, you know, the people couldn't read the Bible. They weren't given any Bible. They only did what the priest told Thanks them for to do. All that so out. Yep. I, I think we need to also see that side. Yes. You know what was it? that made those people hate the Jews so. And I'm sure it was, you know, the Jews hating the Christians too. I mean, what went on inside of them? A lot of people say, you know, how horrible, and it's true, how horrible uh, slavery was in the United States. But I'm not about to condemn those people. I do not know what their thinking was. Mm -hmm. Somehow they felt justified to own people. Really, really, really brilliant points. And so let me try to draw a graph here. So when we study church history, and you know, we want to see this really beautiful, beautiful positive arc, but we often see what? This down here, right? Mrs. Smith, we see the garbage down here. We want to see the soaring arc. We want to see where God's heart is. We want it. What's God's heart? That's what we have to ask ourselves as we muck and mire our way through church history. I don't want to condemn those people at all. But I also want us to think about what? Does that mean we're going to do it again in the third, third millennium? Going to just do it all over again? Or are we going to ask, what's the heart of God? And what does God want from us in the 21st century? So forgive me for going over, and you're all leaving now, and God bless you, and let me, let me say a prayer before you go. Thank you, Lord, for uh, all of the great comments today, and we fall on our face before you and confess our wickedness and our need for your heart. And uh, we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate us and banish the things that we said today that are not correct and help everything that is of you to come to fruition. We pray in Christ's name, amen.